Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Across the globe, financial authorities are enacting or proposing rules around climate risk disclosures and greenhouse gas emissions disclosures. In the US, the SEC released its proposed rule in March of this year, the enhancement and standardization of climate-related disclosures for investors. While this only affects certain companies, it could have broad-reaching effects, especially as part of the rules contain Scope 3 emissions disclosures. Our guest to discuss the SEC's proposed rules and their impact on the energy and commodities sector is Julie McLaughlin. Julie is the Managing Director of the Energy Practice at Alvarez & Marcel, the management consultancy. We discuss what the rules contain, the likelihood of being enacted, and the consequences for the energy and commodities sector. As always, to support the show, please leave us a review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Julie, thanks for joining. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Paul. So we're talking about the SEC's latest proposal titled The Enhancement and Standardization of Climate-Related Disclosures for Investors. And obviously, this is, you know, this is part of a, an array of regulation that's going on around the world by various financial authorities to do with disclosures around the risks related to climate change and also greenhouse gas emissions for the most part. Those are the sort of two pillars of it. Before we sort of dig into the consequences of, of what this means for U.S. companies, can you just give us some background to how this came about and indeed what the process is around creating such rules, the period for comment, uh, and and when and and how they might actually be then enshrined in law. Sure. Yeah, happy to. I mean, I think, you know, I always find it's helpful just just to kind of level set and, and provide a bit of background so that listeners kind of understand where the rules are, are coming from or, or any sort of topic is where the foundation is. The SEC ha- has a very broad mandate to set disclosure requirements for for listed companies and you know that that kind of mandate is is really rooted in a concept of materiality and whenever the SEC thinks that some aspect of a company's business or any other external factors may be influencing the financial health of of businesses and, and causing a material impact that investors need to know about, then then they have a mandate to to kind of you know require disclosures in that area, and and that's really what's happening with with climate risks. Um, there was a briefing hosted by a series earlier this week, and Chair Ginsler talked about this this proposal, and in that conversation he referenced. A group of asset managers that had about $130 trillion under management who've been pushing for public companies to, to disclose climate risks. And this is also a trend that I think reflects a lot of the, the push from, from private investment and certainly thinks annual letter to shareholders around these topics. And so in, in some respects, the, the kind of the public company reporting requirements 
are, are catching up with what certain private investors are already requiring of their portfolio companies. It also is, you know, part of a legacy of, of environmental reporting that started in the seventies as we as a country started really seeing the impact of some serious environmental challenges as a result of, of industrial activities. And kind of in 19, the beginning of the 1970s, the commission started evaluating what reporting would be required related to environmental risks, including, you know, litigation, waste disposal, new laws, what have you. And in 1982, they, they passed kind of the first disclosure requirements related to environmental risks. And so interestingly, you know, we're kind of almost in the same time frame. If you look at it, it took them, you know, just over a decade to kind of pass disclosure uh, requirements for, for the environmental risks between the 70s and early 80s. And on the climate front, um, the first kind of guidance that was issued by the SEC related to, to climate was under the Obama administration in 2010. And that guidance, you can kind of, you know, see the influence of that guidance in, in the current proposed rules in, in mention of impacts from potential insurance claims, from climate ex- exacerbated weather events, uh, cap and trade programs that are would be requiring certain industries and companies to now either reduce their emissions or, or buy offsets. You know, in, in some cases, the, the price of those offsets could, could be quite high. If you're talking about the LCFS and in California, you know, that, that can be the, the tune, you know, to the tune of, of $200 a credit. So that's, that's a pretty significant financial impact as well as, you know, kind of changing consumer preferences. Yeah. So these rules, um, they were published for comment in March, and comments are to re- be received by May 20th of this year. How long will it take for these to get finalized? And indeed, can we just, for the benefit of all of us, who exactly will be, fall under these rules when written? Right. So, you know, I'm not entirely sure uh, how long it will take the rules to be finalized. I have been speaking with colleagues and, and experts in the industry and there seems to be a collective view that something is is likely to get done on disclosure requirements for for climate, and the companies that will be affected um, is you know pretty much every listed company, but to different degrees. So the kind of large accelerated filers who have a float of you know seven hundred million or more will be the most effective. They, if the, um, you know, kind of depending on what version of, of the rules pass, they may be required to disclose scope one, two, and three emissions. And they will be the first required to actually file these disclosures beginning, you know, in 2024 for filing year 2023. Yeah. And that scope three is kind of the, you know, a key part of this. Because that does have really wide ramifications, and we'll, we'll come Huge. on to that. So, but first off, let's let's handle the the first, I guess, pillar if you'd like, which is to do with disclosing risks that the company is now exposed to as a result of climate change, climate climate related impacts. Can you just give us some examples of of what that might do to a, a company's 
10k filing and how is this proposed rule really intended to tackle or or to allow companies to organize and and think about those risks? Right. So the proposed rules draw pretty heavily from, you know, from the recommendations of the, the task force on climate related financial disclosures that released their guidance in 2017. And they bucket you know, the categories into governance, strategy, risk management, metrics, and targets. And during that same briefing earlier this week, Ginsler kind of mentioned that, you know, one of the objectives of these rules is to get climate-related disclosures into those annual filings like 10Ks, um, because that's where investors go to look for critical and material information related to companies they're looking to invest in. So I think that's, you know, certainly one of the objectives. And and in terms of impacts, I, I think regardless of of the company, it, it is going to be a heavier lift to, you know, to address the climate disclosures in, in those four buckets that I mentioned um, as part of the, the 10K filings. And of course, you know, again, depending on the size of the company, some companies will be subject to assurance of, of their emissions reporting. And that, you know, that is an additional burden to tackle in, in the filings. Yeah, it's a bit tricky, though. I mean, there's kind of the obvious, right? If, you know, if you're an electric utility, you're exposed, obviously, to emissions from from whatever fuel you're using, but also California, for example, wildfires. We saw PG&E really affected by this, and that's still ongoing. But there's also kind of like, you know, if you're just a, I don't know, a, a manufacturer of whatever product it might be, there might be products that you use, certain emissions that you have, or supply chains that you're, you're um, exposed to that will be affected by climate change, but it might not necessarily be obvious right now what, how or also um, what the various products and chemicals that they're using and how, how they might fit into future legislation. So it's quite a challenge for companies to know, I guess, how to draw that line, if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. And part of you know where they need to draw the line from a reporting perspective will come down to whether scope three gets included. But I think you're right. There's there's a lot of nuances here. It depends on on what your process is or what your product is as a company and how far, you know, kind of how far down or up the value chain you have to go to to assess and to measure um, and quantify your risks and then figure out what to do about them. Yeah. So which companies and sectors do you feel are best positioned right now to be able to respond to these new disclosures and these these new rules, I guess? Yeah, so I think any company that's already leveraging the TCFD framework is probably in the best position to respond because they're already thinking about and structuring information internally and, and potentially also to, you know, in their annual reports, not necessarily in their filings, but in their kind of glossy form of the annual reports, they may already be doing many of these disclosures and that that will make it pretty easy for them. On the other hand, let's say companies with in high carbon intensity industries that haven't, you know, maybe even really thought about or, or identified their risks are, are going to have a pretty, you know, heavy lift. And then I think there's there's others that maybe they haven't fully thought about it. Like, for example, you know, you and I are, are in the professional services industry and 
and most of our carbon related footprint is you know is is facilities buildings and and travel covid's kind of disrupted the building to some extent maybe certain professional services firms don't even have offices anymore and people are certainly traveling a lot less so so the exposure is is less than it was 3 years ago so i think it it depends on on the industry but but regardless i think the better prepared a company is the more they're thinking now about climate related disclosures how to measure what kind of strategy they're going to set and how they're going to get there the better off they're going to be yeah so let's go into that then what are the strategies that companies can deploy to actually tackle this i mean how should they go about thinking about this because some some obviously some companies have been tracking their greenhouse gas emissions for quite some time they've been building up an inventory of carbon offsets you know they might even be integral to their competitive advantage in terms of the services they offer and so forth others probably haven't done so especially those mid small size companies that probably don't have the public exposure the consumer demand pressures on them that a, an apple for example might have so how can, I guess, starting with people and thought, how can companies enact a strategy to prepare themselves for this? Because, you know, this could be really significant and will be a big part of how investors think about companies and which ones they invest in. Yeah, absolutely. You're completely right. I, I think it, I think it will be, will be significant and, and already is significant, almost regardless of, of, of what gets approved. If you read through the proposed rules, the the way that the questions are framed automatically starts you thinking about risks that you probably hadn't thought about before. So that I think that changes the way that investors think about risks and and you know kind of the average, including the average investor. You know, in terms of strategy, let's say for those companies who have not been thinking about this for for a decade or more and and don't already have, you know, kind of um, extensive strategy around scenario planning and, and potentially leveraging carbon price to evaluate investments. So kind of starting, you know, starting from a little bit of a, a blank page, um, I put them into two categories. The first category is those companies who have already made public targets about decarbonization or, or potentially net zero. and under these new proposed rules, any target that has been publicly announced, then companies um, will be obligated to explain kind of how they're how they're going to reach those targets. So I think for those strategies, the kind of most important task at hand is is creating a roadmap to to achieve those those targets that have already been announced. For those companies who haven't announced a target, then I really see it as a multi-step process where kind of the first step is to gather the right data within within a company and, and ensure its fidelity. And as a firm, AM is is very data-driven. So this is kind of something that that is is our bread and butter is establishing procedures and systems for for collecting, analyzing, and uh, reporting data. The next step would be, you know, kind of once you you know where you're at, you know where your missions are, you can devise, um, you know, kind of a strategy to decide how much you're going to reduce, where you're going to reduce, and in what time frame, um, and run, you know, cost analysis on that. And then, 
you know, then I think the last step is, is really around governance and risk management. How do you ensure on an ongoing basis, you're continuing to collect and analyze and process that data and, you know, and, and really manage risks that, that crop up from, you know, from, from climate. And, and as you mentioned, Paul, some of those are, are kind of, you know, are kind of self-evident, you know, that if you're in California, as I am, wildfires are a risk. They're risks to, you know, to, to many aspects of, of life, including doing business. But there are other places where, where the risks are, you know, are not as clear. And I think, you know, I think the freeze in Texas last year was, was one such example where, where that's typically not something that's an annual challenge like wildfires in California are. And I think we'll continue to see more of that weather volatility. And that, that can be really difficult to, to predict if it, hasn't, if it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I think there's sort of a gravitation towards carbon. And as you mentioned, something very interesting there, you know, companies setting an internal carbon price and using it as part of their project evaluation, even though there isn't a carbon price per se, you know, in the US, for example. Carbon's the easy one to quantify and greenhouse gases, it's easy to have that as a goal because you can get data on it. It's much harder, of course, as you say, to think about how else your business is exposed to climate risk, right? You know, we're both professional services. You know, how much of our travel is going to be interrupted due to increased climate and weather events, right? And what does that mean for us? Um, and, and how risky is that? You know, as an example, because one of the things that the, the report repeatedly discusses is this transition risks, which it leaves quite vague, you know, which, again, this idea of, you know, if, even if this doesn't get proposed, essentially a regulator has highlighted risks that any board should now be aware of and be asking of the organization, irrespective of whether these risks are, you know, the rules are actually approved. But, yeah, what are these transition risks? Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a number of, of transition risks that come to mind, right? Not, not an exhaustive list, but I think, and you mentioned them, let's say there, there are probably aspects of certain supply chains that are subject to both kind of weather and other climate risks in, in other countries that could impact companies. You have changing regulations. So if, if there's, you know, a state, or a country that that kind of changes the regulations around emissions or around which kind of how companies certain sectors can conduct their business or implements a, a kind of a cap and change trade program then those are are transition risks and then lastly kind of consumer preferences and those risks can be harder again to predict i mean i think you know if if any of if either of us knew exactly what consumers wanted when, we'd probably be significantly more wealthy yeah. <laughs> than, than we are right now. So, you know, I think even in the best of times, consumer preferences are 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 hard to predict. But that's one of the things that that the proposed rules do mention. And I think one interesting example of of an industry that um, has been kind of proactively tackling that that transition risk as it relates to consumer preferences is the automotive industry. Ten years ago, do you know how many uh, fully electric passenger vehicles were on the road? The Tesla S. So ten years ago, there's only one fully electric passenger vehicle on the road. Um, today, there's almost forty different models, 
And automotive OEMs have announced over a hundred models that will be available by 2025, which is in, in three years. And that shift, it's not trivial. These, you know, the, the electric drivetrains are completely different than the internal combustion engines and require, you know, different factory configurations, different different parts, different systems. And so, you know, the the automotive industry has, has gone through an astounding transformation in the last decade around, you know, around this kind of consumer preference transition. And I think it can be really exciting. It can be a new opportunity for um, for certain companies to to kind of reinvent themselves and, and sell new products, but it can also be very daunting. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's the reporting on the the climate risks that an organization faces. We've obviously been alluding to it throughout, but the other piece, of course, is is the emissions, the quantifiable emissions, greenhouse gases that companies produce. There's similar frameworks. This framework is used around the world, and there's similar proposed rules or rules enacted in in the EU and the FCA, etc. But so here. Basically, it's saying that uh, companies, and I'll just read it out, okay, have to disclose information about their direct greenhouse gas emissions, that's scope one, their indirect emissions from purchased electricity or other forms of energy, scope two, and then here's the here's the big one. In addition, <laughs> a registrant will be required to disclose greenhouse gas emissions from upstream and downstream activities in its value chain, scope three. Right, so can you talk about um, what exactly are in these proposed rules as it relates to these scopes, is there the requirement to then mitigate these greenhouse gas emissions or is it just, just to disclose them? And, you know, what does it say about scope three? Because obviously that just suddenly the tentacles of this regulation <laughs> go global, right? I mean, we ourselves as professional service firms were suddenly talking about our, our, the emissions that we produce to when we're filling out our RFPs for oil majors, et cetera. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, scope three, depending on the type of business, it, it it can be absolutely enormous and it can be global in nature for, for certain businesses. So, you know, under the, the proposed rules, there there is no obligation to reduce, you know, actually emissions in any of those scopes. There's just kind of the obligation to report them and then with the idea that um, that investors make different choices, you know, once they're informed about about these these emission scopes. Um, so scope three is is pretty enormous. I think broadly, again, talking to colleagues and and other experts in the field, this is the area where we're kind of expecting to see the most pushback in during the comment period. So it's hard to you know I think it's hard to predict what will will get done related to to scope 3 you know in the final rules but yeah for for certain companies that have a global global supply chain global distribution chain getting a handle on scope 3 is is a pretty significant undertaking and will require very active management of of all of those buckets that i mentioned measuring strategy uh, setting up governance and then you know and then managing risks yeah. and probably as a combination of you know some concerted strategy on the front end establishing processes 
And then I, I think most likely, you know, we're going to need some technical solutions as well. And including potentially AI driven because, because some of this data again is, is going to be enormous, difficult to collect and, you know, kind of unwieldy to, to, to manage it. If, if you happen to have a, you know, kind of a global scope. Mm. But once again, well, I guess the intent here is that by companies providing this information to potential investors or investors, it's either going to add a premium or a discount, you know, when you're comparing like for like within an industry and one has a much larger footprint and across these scopes than another, right? That's the the general intent at this stage. But of course, that sunlight on this topic will no doubt then either, you know, investors at the very least will demand look these things now need to be managed and tackled you need to have offsets all these kind of things as well so it would have a cascading result even by just disclosing one two and you know three yeah i mean i think it could i mean i think also you know i think i think certain investors you know certainly like sophisticated investors recognize that there are going to be certain emissions in the value chain that that are are going to be difficult for, you know, for a company to control. So I think there's there's an educational piece and an and an information piece that probably goes along with these disclosures for for the broader investor community and in really figuring out okay, what aspects of these disclosures as an investor would I use to to measure a company to decide, you know, whether a company is is at risk financially as you know as they relate to kind of their their emissions reductions and and climate strategy are there certain sectors or aspects of certain sectors that um that are particularly challenging to manage or that there aren't alternatives right if you are let's say making a specific electronic and there's you know there's kind of certain minerals or, or metals that go into that. And, you know, like there, there may just not be too many alternatives of supply. So I think, I think the devil's in the details and that we're increasing the burden, not only to companies in terms of their disclosures, but also to investors and in, in, in learning more about that. And, and that's actually pretty exciting. I think from, you know, having been in the kind of the clean energy, energy transition sector, my entire professional career, it, it's kind of exciting that everybody's thinking about this now and learning more about it and that it's it's suddenly not the most boring topic at a cocktail <laughs> party. <laughs> and it, we were on this path from it being your social license to operate, let's say that, to your license to operate, right? We are on this journey, it would seem at the moment, where, like you just sort of alluded to earlier, in 10 years, you're going to have another round of proposed rules that are going to require, presumably, you know, it would be much, much stricter on what what to disclose and then evidence of how you are then tackling it, right, um, at the very least. One of the things that the, it says about Scope 3, it says the proposed rules will provide a safe harbor for liability from Scope 3 emissions disclosures and an exemption for smaller reporting companies. That gets to one of the the, the hearts of this, right, which is, the burden then on companies within your supply chain, quite far down or quite far up them, to provide information to you that you know they might not have to produce in their financial jurisdiction, and also information that could be quite you know commercially sensitive as well. 
can you just talk a little bit, you know, how this would work in practice and, you know, how far its reach would be and, and you know, why is there that, that safe harbour from liability? Is it because, you know, again, disclosing this could have a, a potential knock-on effect? Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is that I don't think we know the full impact in terms of, you know, in terms of these proposed rules yet. Going back to something that Gensler said again in that briefing earlier this week, you know, he kind of he kind of mentioned that that safe harbor provision is really designed because there's there's certain elements, especially of of future projections that are that are quite difficult to get perfect. And so I think there's there's kind of an understanding that that there's there's certain aspects of of these reporting that where your information is not going to be perfect and that the SEC understands that. Right. Okay, so we've got this period of comment. What do you think the chances of this, 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 these proposed rules being enacted in their current form, particularly Scope 3? And then almost, does it even matter if now this has been highlighted as risks that boards should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it does matter for sure. And I think something... I think something will get done. Again, having spoken to colleagues and, and experts, there seems to be a pretty significant momentum towards getting something done related to climate disclosures. You know, about a little over 10 years since the climate guidance was was released by the SEC in, in, in 2010. And there's a lot of pressure from the investor community to do something. Whether it includes scope three, hard to say. I'm sure that these rules will go through a number of iterations before they get approved. And then in terms of of having an impact, even even if they do not get approved, which which like I said, I, I, I think something will get done. But just asking these questions, I think is already changing the way that investors think about uh, companies that are investing in and the questions that that both investors and you know kind of board members um, and shareholders are, are starting to ask of companies in terms of disclosure and we are you know again these rules you know are, are still in the comment period but we're already getting you know kind of requests from clients to engage on helping them establish their their procedures and strategies for um, for addressing these climate related disclosures, so I think I think companies assume that something's going to get done and are, and are already trying trying to act. Okay, so let's move on to what can and should companies do about this, particularly as it relates, I guess, to the, the people aspect. <clears throat> you t- you spoke earlier about strategies and you know having these goals and the missions around that, and everything flows from that, but. Does this create new roles within organizations? Does this, you know, a chief climate officer? How how does this get institutionalized within these organizations so that they the decisions are being made on a, a macro and a micro level that play into how they're tackling climate risks within their organization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think new roles do get created and they already, you know, they already have started getting created. Companies are already creating kind of new roles in this in the broader sector. I think we've seen the rise of a lot of new ESG roles, some of them with pretty significant clout at, you know, at the highest levels of, of organizations. And so I think 
for those companies who have been very heavily focused on ESG, it's possible that this responsibility gets gets slotted in under, you know, under some of those individuals who who are responsible for ESG. I think, you know, it's really about finding the right size solution. You know, some companies who've been planning for a while and and have, you know, significant personnel resources with this expertise may be able to do it in-house. I would guess that probably the majority of of companies are are going to use some blend of internal and external to tackle, you know, kind of the transition into adjusting to this reporting and figuring out their strategy and and their commitments. And more broadly, I mean, I think it's a really exciting time to be in the industry for, you know, whether whether you're, you know, kind of further down your career and a little bit older like like I am or just starting off. I think that this is a super exciting time to be in the industry and and one of those rare moments where you can kind of get in at the ground level and shape how companies and how the industry think about their their climate risks and and their kind of their their management of those risks. Yeah. And you of course have spent your your relatively rare in the fact that you spent your career in in sort of the new energies and energy transition so seeing this journey really from its you know inception i guess in the context of the energy energy producers the energy sector itself which organizations are going to find a competitive advantage in this is this going to give those organizations that have been focused on this topic and have strategies in place and are further ahead do they get a competitive advantage now by that because of these disclosures rules? Possibly, but I but I also wouldn't rule out the possibility of, you know, a company that let's say isn't isn't that far down the track in, in how they're going to address this, but is puts intentionality and resources behind an effort and and is agile in thinking about how they structure and then, you know, quickly pivot and adapt. So I, I certainly think if you were to think about it as a journey, I don't, I don't want to use the word race because I think it's, I guess, in the sense of us needing to mitigate the impacts of climate change, it is a race. But in terms of, you know, companies, it's, it's not as linear. But let's say we're at the beginning of this journey. And just because you've been walking for a long time doesn't necessarily mean you, you'll get to some end point or some, you know, kind of desired outcome quicker than a company who's who's kind of just starting who maybe has some some agility and some willingness to you know to move quickly it also has a broader challenge for the entire sector in that we're already in a moment of frankly energy crisis or coming to a neighborhood near you soon and part of that is that there hasn't been the investment in particularly the oil and gas industry the hydrocarbon industry because of concerns from investors about this, um, they've heavily discounted those organizations. And again, this is more uh, sunlight on the topic, which is a good thing, but is it going to make investors more shy and lower those PE values of the energy sector more broadly? Yeah, possibly, but it could also, there are other products that I think consumers don't realize have a significant carbon footprint, depending on what, you know, what are the components in the supply chain that go on those products? Where are they coming from? What's the fuel, you know, utilized on the ship that brings them over from, you know, from some 
from kind of some foreign market. If, again, we don't know what the possibility is of the scope three emissions getting included in the final rules, but if that does get included, then then that may shed some light on products that where people or consumers don't have as much information about their emissions footprint, then then they start getting additional information. And that could, you know, potentially change the landscape of investment. And I think one thing that the energy sector, you know, both the power generation and oil and gas, you know, kind of does have going for them is that there are pretty extensive requirements to report emissions under the EPA. People are aware of those. And so I think, you know, certain companies have been looking at figuring out how to electrify in the oil and gas sector, how to electrify certain aspects of their of their operations with renewables, or what products can they um, can they incorporate like renewable fuels instead of kind of exclusively hydrocarbons. And so I think in, in some respects, the energy industry has been addressing these challenges for for quite a few years. And I believe that there's other industries that um, have kind of gone below the radar again, because the final product is is harder to you know to assess what the real far carbon footprint is and if that information gets disclosed then then perceptions may change there so it's interesting isn't it well it would be very interesting to read the disclosures of some of you know a clothing manufacturer right and there's again there's still a lot of a lot of leeway in how they think about climate risks and you know and and think about the i guess this again the scope three will be the interesting part of it's in one of the things that strikes me about this is is this a shot in the arm is this an acceleration of us getting to a point of a uh, compliance carbon market in the US as opposed to the voluntary market and, and you know some other standards because you can't go ahead and disclose these risks without ultimately you know, with your your scope one two three emissions without ultimately then being asked well how are you going to reduce them what are you doing about it and that's relatively hard in the absence of a compliance carbon market here so do you see this as a booster to us getting to the point of having a at least a US-based carbon market or a glo- you know part of a global one? Yeah, I think it's hard to say. I think the challenge certainly with with a, a carbon market at the or any action on let's say on on regulating carbon emissions at at the federal level it is is certainly challenging because it also requires let's say it would require, you know, kind of pretty broad base support from from both political parties and i don't you know certainly i'm not the right person to opine on the likelihood <laughs> of that <laughs> i don't know if anyone is but yeah. um yeah you know it seems seems fairly challenging you know what i think what is a challenge is that and, and i think you hit the nail on the head is that in the absence of some sort of federal regulation the onus of you know ensuring that a carbon offset is is valid and real currently falls on on the companies procuring those offsets and and that's you know that's a pretty significant administrative burden to you know to have to 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 really make sure that you fully understand what you're buying what are the you know what are the certification bodies that are issuing these credits which you know which have you know kind of uh, rigorous procedures and and which are um, 
are, let's say, a little bit a little bit more liberal in in their verification process. And and that's you know that's 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 a lot of work. And yeah, <laughs> in, in I'm sure an already very busy you know kind of daily you know kind of daily responsibility for for the individuals that would be taking on these um, these tasks. It's certainly, you know, we we know from the episode we did with Dina Reitman, you know, the uh, on the voluntary markets, you know, organizations are definitely some of the forward looking ones are definitely building up inventories in voluntary offsets for just this reason. Right. So that when these these disclosures can come out, they can point to it. But it's as you say, it's going to be a, that's going to be an interesting story over the next decade. This might be a, a bit of a, <clears throat> a silly question, but. We've had this ESG narrative or focus for quite some time now. This is really the E part where the SEC is saying, now we want you to disclose your the risks, your emissions uh, related to the environment and climate change. Do you see similar disclosures going to be required around risks from a, a social and governance standpoint as well? Companies having to actually score themselves more broadly across that panoply of, of, of uh, aspects and attributes that they have with regards to ESG and, and that again becoming a, a crucial part of investors decisions to invest or not I don't wouldn't know how to you know kind of how to measure the the probability of of those kinds of requirements uh, getting you know kind of putting getting put forward or, or getting approved um, I think what we do know is that for companies who are disclosing their activities, you know, related to ESG and let's say, let's just kind of single out the S and the G part of that equation that, you know, they can expect clarification questions coming from the SEC if they have, you know, voluntarily disclosed that that information. Final question. So, you know, this is part of, as we mentioned at the very start, a an array of regulation either in discussion or, or parts of it already enacted ac- across the world for most of the major stock markets and financial authorities. Is this being seen as a major step forward, a major advance in US climate policy and discussion? Or is this is no big deal basically to companies? I mean, how big is the impact on this both locally and globally? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the company, right? I think, you know, companies that have, let's say, operations in, in Europe, I think many of them have, have been expecting some sort of action to follow in the US. Other companies, you know, especially, let's say, some of the smaller, you know, kind of smaller companies are probably not as, as clued into what's happening on the global stage if, if they're, you know, let's say if they're, they're only operating in one or two states. I think there's probably a broad a broad range depending on you know size and scope and 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 sector. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been a, a fascinating discussion. We'll we'll hopefully have you back on once we've uh, got some clarity over the the rules and and how which ones have actually been enacted and how they're starting to play out in those first few disclosures. Because I think you know that would be a I think we'd all be comparing the, the Teslas to the uh, the GMs and seeing that story. That'd definitely be fun. That would, yeah, I think that would be quite interesting. But it's been it's fascinating to see these what companies, certain companies, have essentially been self mandating and talking about and disclosing, preparing for, and others that haven't. Now, now seeing this this becoming part of law, 
And we're on again that sort of march from sort of social license to operate, you know, which is much, far more impactful on those companies that have interact with the consumers are able to put pressure on them. But we're now starting to see this affecting every company, you know, and, and eventually it will become a significant risk and potentially their, their, their license to operate full stop. Absolutely. Well, it's been it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Paul. And um, I also look forward to seeing what, you know, kind of what gets passed and, and how companies respond. And like I said, if you know nothing else, it's it's a very interesting time to be in the industry. And I hate being bored. So, you know, so I'm I'm enjoying all the all the dynamics and and the opportunity to, you know, to really set the stage for the future. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.